You're listening to the sermon audio from the Shore Church located in North Vancouver. For more information about the Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Again, good morning uh, to you. Uh, my name is Jer, and if you do not have a Bible, there are some Bibles at the back table, but if you want to take out your phone or your Bible, please do so, because we're going to be in the Bible a lot uh, this morning. We're going to walk through some of the things that Jesus was tempted in the garden, so you can turn to Matthew 4, and we're going to, or not in the garden, in the desert, and you can turn to that already. Uh, but let me just pray for us as we open up uh, the text of Scripture and talk about this uh, thing that we all battle with, and that is temptation. So let me pray. Uh, Jesus, I thank you so much for your amazing love for us. I thank you that you are sovereign and good. Um, to think of a, a holy, perfect God that would be sovereign and evil is, is scary. Uh, so thank you so much for your character, that you, your character is good. Your, your, your justice is perfect, uh, Lord. And I thank you for the many other attributes that you hold. Um, Lord, we, we thank you for all of who you are. We ascribe to you all things. And, and Lord, we want to give you and hand over our hearts to you as well. And so I, I, I pray for that now, that, that we as a church will literally hand over our lives to you, that we will be servants, saints of yours and fellow sufferers uh, for your kingdom's glory and for your, for your name to be revered around this world and in the coming eternity. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm not sure, maybe some of you have heard of a name, Chuck Swindoll. He, he talked about this one story about when it comes to temptation and he was telling about this man that was climbing through uh, like a rocky gorge in, uh, in kind of northern California. And as he was climbing up through this rocky area gorge, he was hunting some deer and he was climbing up and kind of hand over hand and foot over foot here. And he's working his way and then he saw this thing flash before the face, face of his, right before his face. And all of a sudden he realized that it was a, it was a rattlesnake and it, it it struck at him and he rears back and it t- he, his fangs were so close that it lodged into his sweater, the neck of his sweater. And he instantly, without with really quick reaction, he reaches back and grabs it just behind the head, just around his neck. And he, and he falls backwards and slides down this cliff and, and eventually he gets his feet underneath him and takes his rifle and he, he wedges it in between his claw, the, these fangs that are piercing into his sweater. And all he hears is this hissing and rattling, and he feels the venom rushing down the back of his neck. And he takes his rifle, and he, and he wedges the fangs loose, and, and eventually uh, he, re, he tells this story to a friend, and he goes, the only way out of this is I had to choke him out. He had to choke him out. And in the, book, in the Bible, in 1 Peter 5, 8, we, hear, we see temptation roaring like a lion. We see, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Seeking, like looking for. Seeking someone to devour. J.D. Greer, an author and pastor, says this about temptation. When it, when it comes to battling temptation, many of us assume 
that good intentions are sufficient, we really do want to overcome temptation, but we've never considered that our temptations are administered at the hands of a skillful, ruthless enemy bent on our destruction. Our good intentions are no match for the corruption of our flesh, much less the cunning of our enemy. Marshall Siegel, an author, writes it this way, temptation will please you to abuse you, seduce you to undo you, and distract you to destroy you. So whether a snake or a lion prowling around, there is no doubt we have an adversary that the scriptures continually warn us about, continually. So to keep us on track, I've outlined this morning this way. I want to hit three major topics, like what is temptation, what, does, what temptation does and how to battle temptation. And what is temptation is lust of the flesh, pride of life, and lust of the eyes. What temptation does, it seduces you, it shames you, and it sifts you. And then how to battle temptation. We want to renounce, announce, and worship. Renounce, announce, and worship. So let's walk through the temptations of Jesus. You've already turned your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 through 10, as we hear this amazing story. And you can read the whole context all the way back to 1, all the way through. And you hear this context where the, where the Spirit of God leads, leads Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the evil one. And the temptations of, of the evil one are lust of the flesh, pride of life, and lust of the eyes. And we see this, like, look at verses 3 and 4 of Matthew chapter 4. It says this, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus answers, It is, a, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, no form of temptation is greater like lust of the flesh, pride of life, lust of the eyes, not one is greater than the other. Like each of these three attack us differently, but this one in particular is very common to all of us. The lust of the flesh is to be about your felt needs over the worship and glory of God the Father. And this could be the worship of food, drink, sex, your, your physical body by way of exercise or slothfulness. And we see this more than ever in the world today. Like diets are everywhere. Exercise, everywhere. Eating disorders, which I like to call disordered eating. It's everywhere. It's rampant through our, through especially our teens and, and through others in their 20s and even into their 30s and 40s. See, disordered eating, you are trying to control your eating, harming yourself, trying to take what has been bought with a price, like your body, and order it for your gain. Like we need to think through that and what you're doing with food and ordering it for gain. Often the gain comes from affirmation of another, fear of man, displeasing the eyes of others, often the opposite sex, but sometimes the disordered eating started because of a comment from a friend or a parent. Ultimately harming yourself more than helping. See, it's, the, it's in the desert that Jesus battled this temptation by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 saying, And he, God, humbled you, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
See, it is the word of God that brings order, that brings instruction, that brings structure, and that brings sustenance against the lust of the flesh. The felt needs that we so easily long towards and and draw towards. See, it is the Lord that will humble us to the point of awareness that we need him and him alone. Him and him alone. So we have lust of the flesh and it's, it's everywhere. Secondly, we have pride of life. And look at Matthew 4 again in verses 5 through 7. It says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, to Jesus, If you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is pride of life. It is to play the role of God. To think more highly of yourself, proclaiming new laws for yourself. See, the most common one I hear, and I've done a lot, like I've done a lot of marriages, a lot of weddings. Some of you in this room, I, I did your wedding. I performed, I officiated your wedding. And some actually sent me some pictures, which are hilarious because I looked very different back then. But I've done over 50 weddings in hundreds and hundreds of hours of pre-marriage counseling and also marriage counseling afterwards. And what I hear in the pre-marriage counseling is, Jer, we are married in our own hearts. And and I've heard that over and over and over again. I've heard also, Jer, we love each other. We are doing these things differently. So doing things differently than how God has called you to? Is that what you mean? See, the subtlety of sin is dangerous We so quickly rewrite the commands of God without even realizing it. And each one of us does it. See, this is giving allowance to yourself to live the way you want, to do what you want physically with one another. And most concerning, change what God has already said within Scripture regarding marriage and your body as his temple. But it doesn't only stop within marriages, right? We all know this. Mankind has been degrading God's loving law since the beginning of time, claiming they're out of fashion. These, these laws, these statutes, the, these commands that are in the scripture are out of fashion. Old, behind the times, not relevant. See, the excuses to play God are endless, especially when we don't want to live by them. In the desert, Jesus battled this temptation by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, showing that it is wrong to abuse the power given to you. Do you realize we all have power that has been given to us? We have been given power to do what we want. You can choose to live however you want. It may go really good for you, but there will be a day you will stand before God in all his glory and be held accountable for how you mistreated his word. See, knowledge, for example, is an amazing thing, but the Bible tells us plainly in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that knowledge puffs up. It creates pride within you. Proverbs 26, 12, it's on the screen. It says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? Have you ever seen this man? Wise in his own eyes. There is more hope for a fool than for him. See, the role we have been given in this life as servant, as saint, and as sufferer for God's kingdom, not ours. That's the role we've been given. 
Meaning, as a Christian, we submit to God alone, God's word alone, period. We don't push back on it. We don't, we don't change it. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. And this is exactly what Jesus exemplified for us in the desert. He pointed the evil one back to the word of God. Lust of the flesh, the felt needs that you so long for. Pride of life to put yourself equal or above God. And thirdly, lust of the eyes. Matthew 4, 8 through 10, it says this. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Him only. See, the lust of the eyes, like the other two ways of temptation, are to elevate yourself over the Lord, ultimately partnering with Satan and creating yourself as God. This played out in covetous behavior, jealousy, anger. The many examples of this are when, when the Pharisees on their high horses argue with Jesus and his word, or when people of Korah decided they wanted to lead rather than Moses. Or Jonah running from God's word because he felt his justice was better. Friend, no different than we do. Like, think about this last week. How often did we run away from God's word and made our word superior? See, when we argue and complain against what God has said in his word and push back on it, we make ourselves equal to it or greater than. Like, Flip over to uh, the Gospel of John, or scroll, or do whatever. But John chapter 8, this, is a, this text <clears throat> kills me every time I read it. <clears throat> but John chapter 8, starting in verse 34. So you got the Pharisees, and, and Jesus entering in, and, and they're pushing back on one another. And Jesus is talking to these individuals, and Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, in verse 34 of chapter 8, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to, to it, slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said back to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father and what your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, this is great. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? And then he answers the question. 
He says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. And then he ends in verse 47. If you just skip one verse there, it says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reasons why you did not hear them is that you are not of God. See, when we disregard the words of God in the scripture, we aren't disregarding words. We are disregarding the very words of God himself. Like, let that sink in. When we disregard what the Bible says, we are disregarding God of heaven, the supreme holy of holies, the one who knows from the beginning to the end and eternally both ways. That's who we disregard. And we partner with Satan. See, the lust of the eyes, it gets worse. See, what sin never tells you is that no matter how powerful you feel and how in control you feel, while in sin, you will always be subservient to Satan. Always. And his whole goal is to manipulate you and prove your unworthiness as a child of God's. We see this played out in the story of Job as Satan stands in the court of God trying to convince God that Job will turn toward unrighteousness if God removes the common grace of family, health, and possessions. And Satan is trying to manipulate God in the life of Job to prove the point that man is not worthy to be called children of God. Friend, he is completely right. If we don't have Jesus 2,000 years ago, we're in big trouble because none of us here are worthy. Not one on this planet is worthy. The only worth we have and can stand on right now is the worth Jesus gave to us by his shed blood on the cross. That's it. Lust of the flesh, pride of eyes, or sorry, pride of life and the lust of the eyes are calling to you every second of every day. So how do we battle temptation? Well, what, <clears throat> we'll get to more of this at the end, but what I want you to remember at all times as we talk of this is that in 1 John 4, 4, an amazing passage to remember is it says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, the, the spirits of this world, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. See, this is why we talked about the spirit-filled life earlier. This is why we're going through the process of these discipleship tools and and foundations of the faith. We want to start with God, who he is, his attributes. We move to his word and we move to prayer, his allowance to respond to his actions. And now we're talking in spirit-filled life and now we're here in temptation. So we can look back to the foundations that we've been covering over this nine-week series to remind us that we are a spirit-filled 
Your strength to overcome is from the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Or in Psalm 96, 4, it says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. His word, he himself is to be feared above all things. So when tempted to serve yourself or another, we must remember that God is the one to be feared. God is the source of all power and love. And he resides in you when you confess him as Lord. Like we battle, we battle by pointing to Jesus. This is how we battle. Pointed to him. We'll hit more of this at the end. So let's continue to talk a bit more about what temptation does. What temptation does, it seduces you, it shames you, and it sifts you. So seduces you. Marshall Siegel uh, wrote this, a man that writes articles. He says, <clears throat> before temptation can betray us to destruction, it must woo us with some promise of satisfaction. It must woo us to some promise of satisfaction. And he continues on, he says, sinful pleasure will always be appealing if we have not set our hearts on a superior pleasure. And John Piper, pastor and author, wrote, the power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. No one sins out of a sense of duty. Like, think of that. The only reason why you draw towards sin is because you think it's going to make you happier. But we know it doesn't. It may for a short time in your mind, in your heart, you, because you're worshiping yourself. So all of a sudden it's like, I get this. So it's making me happier for a season. But the temptation of sin is offering you gratification. It's offering you comfort. It's offering you release. It is offering you rest. And you sin because you want one of those things to be fulfilled. Sin, like we said earlier, plays on your felt needs. It will play on what you desire. It will play on what you want. But the over outcome, as we have all experienced, is shame, anxiousness, depression, and a desire for more because it satisfies for a time but always calls for more. See, temptation rests on us be, being tired or bored of God, the deepest, strongest pleasure in the universe. That's what it's playing on. And friend, this world never, never happened, this would never happen if we sought after God the way we seek after sin. Right? Like, think about that. Like, if we actually sought after the Lord the way we seek after pleasure, we would find true pleasure in him. Like David wrote this in Psalm 16, 11. He said, you make known to me the path of life. Like the path of life is now, I understand it. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we have all been seduced already today, haven't we? Seduced to draw away from the Lord. Seduced to think about my own desires, my own wants, my own needs. I know I have. And it's Sunday morning. And I knew I was preaching this text. So we've all been seduced 
And are you going to believe the path that God has laid out for you, that his presence is best, at his right hand we will experience fulfillment? Friends, beware of the seduction of the eyes of the flesh and the pride of life. And secondly, temptation, it shames you. It shames you. We're going to do a really short Christmas sermon series. Um, and as I was studying this week on this, uh, it's going to be called uh, The Extraordinary Event That Broke Shame. And so we're going to talk about, a little bit more about shame. And just, I want to just want to touch on this a little bit. But some give in to temptation because temptation has named them. It's named you. Shame names you. It, it identifies you. It is a powerful thing. So your temptation goes from being an external thing to being an identity marker. One author said, shame and self-pity are Satan's food. So when you're looking inward towards yourself, Satan loves it. It's like it, like it draws him in. He thrives off of it. And the more he has you believe lies about yourself and others, the more he can manipulate you further down the roads of confusion. And ways to battle the attacks are speaking the truth. That's the only way to battle the attacks of shame. But even the truth is being attacked today, leading to more shame. See, there is one truth. There are a million perspectives. There are a million opinions. But one truth See, temptation's purpose is to draw you in so that it can now twist from offering you satisfaction, comfort, and release to shaming you for saying yes to the offer. Does that make sense? Like, let me tell like, I was, I was an evil kid. I was an evil kid. I had an older brother, and I would constantly look to my older brother, and I would tempt him towards things that I, we both knew were wrong. And I would go, just do it, man. Take, take it, take it, take it, take it, take it, take it. And I would just speak to him constantly, trying to tempt him into doing something. And then as soon as he did it, I would go, Mom, look it. I was evil. But isn't that exactly what Satan does? Tempt, 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 tempt. As soon as you enter in, shame. You're not worried. How dare a Christian wouldn't do that? Why would you do that? Unbelievable. You're not worthy. It's evil. So we can be freed from shame today by rightly handling our sin. And the freedom comes through a loving community. Opening up to the things that you feel identity marked by. This is how we beat shame, by bringing things to the light by opening up and sharing your story, by opening up and telling the things of your hurt. And now imagine this. These are the things that you want to bury. These are the things that you want to isolate from. These are the things that you know, I can't tell that about myself. But this is exactly the process to be freed from these things. So man, it is a tricky one. It is a tricky one. And man, it hooks you to the point where it's just easier to isolate. It's easier to bury this thing. It's easier not to talk about it. But is it? Or is that burying just going to wear on you over and over and over again? 
and you're all alone battling this when Jesus is telling us in 1 John 1, 9 to confess your sin and I will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's calling us to speak it, to bring it forward where Satan wants to twist you and keep you silent and hide it. Shame is an evil thing. So temptation seduces you, it shames you, it names you, and thirdly, it sifts you. See, the enemy is trying to wear you out. Garrett Keel wrote this article, quote out of this article, is that the tempter assures you that you are wise enough to see when you are in trouble, and he wants you to think you're safe even while indulging in sinful exploration. Ever been there? He wants you to think you're safe even while indulging in sinful exploration. He also wrote in the same article, he says, if Satan cannot tempt you into a great sin, he will settle for a small one because he knows that small sins pave the way to greater ones. Callousness grows in small degrees. Fear of God does not disappear all at once. You slowly become disillusioned with sin severity and then you wind up with a thousand idol-worshipping housemates. See, temptation over and over again will blind you. It will make you greedy to the point you deserve or destroy love of God and love of neighbor. And we see this all throughout Scripture. It's everywhere when you start looking for it. You see this in Judges 16.5 with the Philistines tempting to Delilah with money to destroy Samson. Like riches beyond riches. Like each one of them were going to give her, give her 1,100 pieces of silver if she found out Samson's strength. We see this in Judas' story of his betrayal of Jesus and his close friends. We don't talk about that much, but he was hanging out with all the disciples for three years. They were probably pretty tight. And he disowned them, completely disregarded them for 30 pieces of silver. See, temptation is sweet, but when tasted, is bitter and dangerously sharp. We see this in Proverbs chapter 5, where the adulterous woman is just drawing in and calling out to men that are walking down the street. We see in Proverbs 5, 4, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Temptation robs us of honor and squanders our lives. It causes us to seek after things that do not matter. Don't matter, Proverbs 5, 9. It spoils our strength and ruins our work, Proverbs 5.10. And it ends in futility and regret. You've ever felt that? The draw and the seduction of sin and it draws you in and then you take it and instantly you're filled with shame because you just were, eyes were wide open to what you just did. Regret. How did I do this? How did I get drawn in? It's evil. See, the mission of, te- of temptation is to steal, kill, and destroy. We see this in John 10.10, 10, where it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus comes that we may have life and have it abundantly. He wants abundant life for you. Abundant. That's a big word. Satan wants to kill you, destroy you, 
So how do we battle temptation? How do we battle the lust of the flesh, pride of life, lust of the eyes? We raw. I got this uh, years ago when we started a men's ministry, the former church that I was at. In this men's ministry, they did this. They would stand up and they would raw. They would yell out raw. And it means renounce, announce, and worship. Renounce, announce, and worship. And so anytime a sinful temptation came, they would say in their head, or even out loud, walking down the street, looking like a little bit crazy, they would go, rah! They would renounce it. And we see this in Luke 14, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Church, we are called to newness, a new birth. Like, do you get this? Like, you are reborn. You're, you're new in Christ Jesus. And you're called to now a newness. A new life in Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, which means it's a dead body. It's passed away. And we see this over and over in Scripture and the story of the Exodus is, is so told over and over in the Bible. And we remember when the Red Sea was parted and they walked across the dry ground. They got to the other side and God goes, I will show you who I am. And he drowns the Egyptians. The whole army that was chasing them down. The persecutors, the slave, the slave masters. And he drowns them and there are all these dead bodies on the sea, on the, on the beach. And they look back at the beach And God goes, the old life has passed away. It's over. And what do they do three days later? Man, I wish we were back in Egypt. Looking at these dead bodies. I wish I was there. But isn't that us? Isn't this us, friends? We are a new creation The old has passed away. Behold, the new has now come. Stop looking at the dead corpse. 2 Corinthians 4.2 says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is being above reproach in all that we do. Titus 2.12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Why? Because we have a king that is returning. Church, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, then you are saved, saved by grace and faith alone. But now we abide. Now we live differently. And it's unfortunate so often when you're in a church, it's like, but that's not grace alone, faith alone, Jerry. You're talking about self-righteousness. No, read your Bibles. That is 100% true. You are saved by grace alone, by faith alone. But the Bible constantly says, now abide. Now live as a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ. There's an action step. has nothing to do with salvation. This was 100% true. You are saved by grace and Jesus, what he did on the cross. You are worthless, but he made you worthy by his blood shed on the cross. Now, go and do it. 
This has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation's here. Our actions are now to be a doer of the word. A doer of the word. Not just merely a hearer, as James 1 says. So we abide. Now we live differently. The life God has purchased us with his, with his by his blood. And he is calling us to live as sons and daughters of God. There is a call to live differently. So we renounce. Renounce the evil within us. And secondly, we announce. Like the song of Moses, we too are to announce our worship and dedication to the Lord in Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 3. It says, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the, in the, as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like f- showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Man, I hope this is our song too. That we just can't hold it in anymore. That we announce the beauty of the salvation that we've experienced by grace alone to our friends and our neighbors. This is witnessing. This is what we covered last week. Or Jesus, as he teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, I ascribe everything to you, God. Everything is yours. We, we announce that we no longer serve or are named by our temptations, but rather we announce our allegiance to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Like Romans 13, 14, we no longer make provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires, but in Romans 6, 18, we are set free from sin, have become slaves of now of righteousness. This is who we are. A slave of Righteousness. So we renounce and we announce and we worship. We worship. It is nothing we have done, but all Jesus has done. Romans 6, 20. Romans 6 is an amazing chapter. I love this chapter. Look at Romans 6, 20 to 22. I think it, do I have it on the screen? Yeah. Let's read it real slow here. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. What? When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You weren't covered by the righteousness of Jesus. You were freed. You were freed from any type of righteousness. So in other words, you, you, you could do whatever you wanted. You could, you could live how you wanted. You were free from it. There's no pressure on you, no law, no commands, no statutes on you. And then he asked this amazing question in verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed of? Like, what were you getting? When you're lying and stealing and sleeping around and doing all this kind of stuff? What, like, just curious, what, what did you receive in that, that time period? Was it good? How did it make you feel? Did you constantly have to hide things? Did you isolate away? Did it hurt? Were you hooked by your sin that you couldn't just get out of anymore? Did relationships, were relationships broken? Was it hard to talk with loved ones because there's such a fracture between the two of you? 
How is it going for you? In other words, Paul is asking, how did that life live out? Did you enjoy it? And then he goes on and he says, for the end of those things is death. But now, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Sanctification is a big word and it's a long journey. And it's going to feel like you're going down at times, but actually you're always going upward. You're going upward to glorification, which is another long word, but glorification is when we get to see Jesus face to face. So that sanctification is a long journey. It's a hard one because you're saying no to things you always said yes to before. And the beauty of this passage is the very next verse is Romans 6.23. It's one of my favorites. And it sums up what we just read. For the wages of your sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So either you can choose the way of sin and receive death, or you can choose the way of Christ and receive eternal life. Up to you. And just ask yourself, what do I get when I go after this? Is it lasting? Is it helpful for relationships around me? Or when I go after this, what, what's it like? See, temptation is all around us. It is a roaring lion ready to devour you. It's a snake trying to lodge its fangs in you. And we are called to choke out, starve, flee from temptation. And we can do this by renouncing the lie, by announcing the truth, and worship Jesus as Lord. This is how we battle, friends. This is how we battle. And I want to encourage us as a church, as individuals, that as we walk out that door, that we begin to raw, that we begin to renounce the things that are of the flesh and pride of life and the eyes. And we begin to renounce it and announce the glory of Jesus Christ and worship him. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, we need your help. We so desperately need your help. We know that the flesh is wrong, but yet it's so tempting. So Lord, help us be quick. Help us to build new habits that we would renounce these things quickly, that we will not let them linger in our minds, that we will not let them linger at our fingertips, but that we will just turn away and choose a new way because we know that way is death. And so help us, Lord, do this. Empower us, soften our hearts to what you have for us and help us, Lord, in this week to come, in the days to come, in the years to come, Lord, that we might be new and that we rely on your indwelling Holy Spirit to empower us and to help build a self-control and a deep love and a peace and a joy and a thanksgiving and a gentleness that we might be new. So help us, Lord. I, I pray that for me as well. I desperately need this. 
And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.